You're tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. Hello, TV campers. We're back with another great conversation for you live from ATX Season 7. Today's panel is about penultimate episodes and finales. I'm sure all of you TV fans are very familiar with what a penultimate episode is, but just in case you aren't, it's pretty simple. A penultimate episode is the one before the finale. In the anti-penultimate episode, which was new, even for us, and it's the one before the one before the finale. It's totally not confusing at all. <laughs> nope, not at all. Makes perfect sense. We need to name everything the one before the one. And I mean, why not? Sounds like a Friends episode. Yeah, oh, it does. You're right. I wonder what their penultimate. They don't have that wouldn't. They know. might. They have, they have some to be continued, but those yeah. may still be finales. I'm going to look into it. Great. Um, this panel really came about because I, Caitlin, was finding myself truly loving penultimate episodes, sometimes more than finales. And I started kind of wondering why they were just extremely satisfying, but I just wondered if there was something structurally or emotionally that creators got to do in the one before the end. Like you don't have to tie everything up, but you get this benefit of having all of your characters fully formed and all of the stories sort of laid out there that you kind of get a freedom to do some pretty big things. Um, so I just, I wanted to explore it. So yes, because ma'am. you love this topic so much, what are some of your favorite penultimate episodes? Um, I think the one I started actually really noticing it on was very obviously Game of Thrones, Red Wedding. And then it happened again with Battle of the Bastards and it started to become a trend. But Legion season one, chapter seven, which is its penultimate, just felt like, extremely satisfying that I almost thought they were done. And then they had a finale afterwards, obviously. Um, Justified has has one called Collateral. And truly, Halt and Catch Fire, I think every season, their penultimate just had so much crammed into it in a way that wasn't too much. It was just, I couldn't believe there was still another episode to come. And they were just extremely satisfying. So yes, all of Halt and Catch Fire. Well, lucky for you and for our listeners, Halt and Catch Fire co-creator Christopher C. Rogers is actually part of this panel, along with Castle Rock creators Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason and the Affair creator Sarah Treem. You know what another one of my favorite penultimate episodes is? What? The Sons of Anarchy penultimate episode. All of them? Well, maybe all of them. I actually have to go back and think about the earlier seasons, but the series finale the penultimate episode penul- the, the, the ultimate penultimate is that what it's called no i'm just i think that's what it should be called <laughs> the penultimate before the series finale yeah. is now named the ultimate penultimate done anti-penultimates ultimate penultimates penultimates without any suffix prefix <laughs> all of the things i mean you also have to kind of mention breaking bad ultimate penultimate I can't even say it now. <laughs> Ultimate penultimate episode, um, which is also pretty spectacular. But that Sons of Anarchy one was so good. It was so good. So just a few quick notes before we hand it over to our very talented moderator, Daniel Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter. There was no audience mic. So when they open it up to audience questions towards the end of the panel, you won't hear the audience's question. You'll just really hear the answer. So there'll be some brief silences, but just hang tight and our panelists will chime in with answers that are totally worth the wait. 
And also, given the nature of this topic and talking about the ends of things, there are some pretty explicit spoilers for early seasons of Game of Thrones and The West Wing that come up, plus non-TV spoilers for The Usual Suspects, which if you haven't seen The Usual Suspects, you should definitely watch before this panel because it kind of ruins the whole movie if you don't know what happens. I mean, I guess it ruins the whole movie if you do know what happens and watch the movie that is knowing that, the end. That is the correct order. <laughs> <I'm trying>. So <laughs> consider this your official heads up. <laughs> but if you're not into spoilers and you're not ready to go down this particular path, don't worry. We have plenty of other conversations. If you just pause this one, go watch The Red Wedding at your leisure, but then go back and listen to our first five episodes, which are in-studio conversations, original TV campfire episodes, or plenty of other season seven panels. So you can just come back to this one and it'll just, it'll be there waiting for you. I also think just as a side note, um, my voice for this particular intro is just calling back to the festival. <laughs> if if you are aware of me introing any panels on day two or three or four of the festival, this sound is just, it's got to take you right back to TV camp. Although Season I feel seven. like this is your finale voice. It is my finale voice. This oh, is how you sound at the finale no, of the festival. No, actually, it's my penultimate voice. My finale voice is just... <laughs> your finale <laughs> voice is when you stand next to me and smile and wave when I yeah, intro things I put, because you can't talk anymore. I put a cough drop in my mouth. I wave. Mm. I actually really like those days. I don't have to, I have no, all the pressure is taken off of me. <laughs> you just can't talk. So this is my penultimate voice. Oh, I like it. Yeah, you're welcome. Feels like full you're circle welcome, right listeners. there. So now, full of a log, settle in around the campfire and enjoy round one penultimates versus finales. Thank you all for coming out this afternoon uh, for round one penultimate versus finale. I'm a tiny bit confused by the round one aspect of it, which suggests that I'm about to get into fights with these people, but you know, we'll see, it could get heated. So okay, our panelists today, up first, hailing from Halton Catch Fire, Christopher Rogers. I don't know which one is you. Oh, nope, you're right there. Excellent. Hailing from the upcoming Hulu drama Castle Rock, Dustin Thomason. From Showtime's The Affair, Sarah Treem. And also from Hulu's upcoming Castle Rock, Sam Shaw. I guess, I'm, okay, so the question becomes, when you're watching a TV show, for each of you personally, as you sense that the show is coming to an end, when do you start expecting the answers to come? And this is for you as a, as a viewer, not talking at all you as a showrunner. When do you start thinking, okay, here is where I'm gonna get my resolutions, where I'm gonna get my answers? Well, you know, I, th I think, um at the risk of spoiling season one of Game of Thrones um, for anyone. Uh, I feel like the, the fact that at, when you got to the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones season one, and that's where Ned gets his head cut off, like in a weird way, I, we weren't expecting that, but at the same time, it, it felt to me like a moment where I sort of, and having watched TV my entire life, like 
had thought a little bit about the idea of penulti- penultimate episodes before that, but that really was the moment where I was like, oh, I, th- I think maybe this is a thing where where there's a, a an enormous event that happens in the second to last episode that then kind of sets the stage for well, the final episode. It was kind of like a statement of purpose. It was like watching Kaiser Sose kill his own family. It was like, watch out, motherfuckers. You have no idea where we're, where we're headed. It was just kind of thrilling. It sort of suggested that like um, the horizons for the show were going to be um, more reckless than one might have expected. I feel like we need to set the parameters. What are we spoiling and what are we not spoiling? Is Game of Thrones season one really off limits? Is that fair game? (laughs) I feel like if you can't spoil that, we have problems. So, okay, so Game of Thrones, you say, is the answer. Because, I mean, I was thinking about this myself because I also saw the topic and didn't have an immediate answer for what it was. And and I started thinking of of other HBO shows also. Something like uh, Boardwalk Empire was an example of a show that the penultimate episode you knew... Um, poop was going to go down. I'm not sure if there are any kids in here, so I don't want to you know, swear or spoil Game of Thrones season one. Um, similarly, The Wire is another show that, to my mind, did a lot of penultimate episodes that were big. When do you think something like that becomes ingrained in viewership in terms of expectations, and, and does it feel like a new phenomenon to some degree? I, so I, I think, that at least... In my experience, like it sort of happens naturally at some point. Like there's a now I'm gonna sound super heady, but um, if you think of like an Aristotelian format for drama, and you think of a television season as an Aristotelian format, which I do, it works. Uh, you know, it, 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 at least with my show, it's like usually like the first seven episodes are basically rising action. It's just like rise, 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 rise for seven episodes. And then invariably, and I don't think we're necessarily planning it this way, but something happens around like the seventh or eighth episode that feels like, you know, kind of catastrophe, climax, whatever. And then there seems to be a falling action. And, and, and the penultimate episode does take place actually within the falling action, but it's just like something changes. You know, it's like this, it's this weird triangle that rises like this and then goes down like that and then you're out. So um, I, I, I feel like the penultimate episode is, is like very swift falling action. And then sometimes uh, it, it's actually, you know, that big blow up is at the very end. Like um, I feel like the, the television shows that are more story based that, you know, I mean, all television shows are story based to a certain extent, but the ones that are, that are mostly story based, like they save it for the last episode where the big climax happens, but, but some of the, like Mad Men, for example, I felt like did penultimate episodes really well. Like a lot of times, like the big character turns, like the, the reveal of Don Draper, you know, when Pete realized, like confronts Don and realizes and, and, and confronts him on his, his identity, that I think happens in the penultimate episode. So th- I feel like sometimes with character, it's like, y- you can't wait to the last episode to blow out character. You need to give the audience a little bit of a runway out, and that usually actually happens then in the final episode. But but shows that are more sort of story-driven. Like, I feel like Homeland tried to do this one year where they tried to do their, penul- their, big, uh, their big climax in their penultimate episode, and then there wasn't much in their, in their final episode, and people really revolted. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's a really, that's a really good show, so it was, it was okay. <laughs> they, they could bounce back. <laughs> they could bounce back, yeah. I think it's interesting, though, because uh, um, I feel like those early big HBO shows did kind of set this rhythm, and I'm thinking of The Sopranos, and you mentioned The Wire, where the big death is going to happen in the penultimate episode, and the last episode is about the resumption of ordinary life. Like, life always just returns to normal, and there's like a big montage that just shows that like the events of the season are going to wash into the fabrics of these people's existence, and that's just, you know, where we're going to leave you. But 
Uh, I do feel like there's a lot of shows now that are kind of trying to respond to that because I think audiences expect it. Uh, I think of a show like The Leftovers, which obviously was pretty convention-defying, but I, I love shows that kind of get there before you think they will, you know? I, I think we can usually see those things on the horizon. So I think you're seeing a lot of that in kind of seven, eight, nine now, too, you know? So there, there's all these kind of feints and, and tricks. Yeah, it's interesting how, how um, sort of new conventions uh, emerge. So something that I've noticed recently is there are a lot of penultimate episodes that seem to um, offer up backstory, right? So Nixon versus Kennedy, that, that Mad Men ep uh, penultimate episode of the first season, it's not a flashback episode per se, but it sort of fills in the crucial gap in Don's backstory. Um, but the penultimate episode of Leftovers season one takes you back to the day of the departure. The penultimate episode of this season of Atlanta is a flashback episode. Um, there's, sort of, there's sort of a a model that says sort of the penultimate episode can be about um, context. How did we get here? What does it mean? And the finale becomes a story about what happens now. Go back before you go forward. Well, uh, it's funny. I was um, in preparation for this panel. I was looking um, back at the West Wing a little bit. And, um, and I was looking at some of the penultimate episodes of the Sorkin years, the West Wing, and sort of trying to see if there was any common thread. And um, in a way, the way that those episodes are approached is a little more in the kind of Game of Thrones um, uh, way, which is the, the, like, the crazy right turn in the penultimate episode, which is, I think, another, another way that is related where it's, it, it sort of feels like, a cons like sort of a consummation of story that's been built over the course of the season, but at the same time, it's a totally unexpected turn. So like at the end of season two of the West Wing, of the penultimate episode of the West Wing, um, Mrs. Lanningham dies again. Sorry for the spoilers. Okay, so we, we can spoil guy, early man. seasons of West <laughs> That's Wing. two shows I wanted to see. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and so, and, and then, and then um, so two in the penultimate episode of season four is when Zoe gets kidnapped. And so it's like, I think that there are... Um, Clearly, he he was sort of doing something where a, a crazy right turn happened that would then inform the character's decision making in the final episode, um, but that sort of felt inevitable in its way. Well, Chris, I, in preparation for this panel, I was looking at seasons of Halt and Catch Fire, and you guys actually did a lot of anti-penultimate episode twists. I was noticing the third season has the big IPO, which is basically the climax of the season. In the anti-penultimate episode, then you jump forward in the penultimate. And then in the final season, somebody may or may not die. And I'm definitely not going to say who, because if you haven't seen Halt and Catch Fire, you should. But how calculated is that sort of the one episode earlier than we expect to get those things? Um, you know, I mean, I, I think I alluded to it actually, which is that we believe really strongly in trying to use your story as fast as you humanly can because it well it puts you in a corner and I and I think cool stuff comes after that you know I mean I think there's a story you know you're going to tell there are big moves like the death of a major character uh, the failure of a project or success of a project that you can probably see coming from the very beginning of the season uh, and while you do want that to be an enjoyable ride and, and kind of thwart audience expectations leading up to that sometimes I think the most interesting things in a season happen after you've played what you think are your, your big last cards. Um, so we, we kind of codified that by the time we were getting to the seasons you're talking about. And, and I think we also kind of believed, uh, as a show that was often on the bubble with renewal, that the last episode should be a little bit of a pitch for 
where you might go in the future. Uh, so, so that was always kind of some of the calculus as well. And that's something I definitely want to talk about because it's kind of a different thing if you know you ha if you finish a season knowing that you have another one versus if you finish a season not knowing. There, there's kind of a school of thought that's more on broadcast where shows on the bubble, the showrunners throw in a huge cliffhanger in the finale as a way of kind of forcing the network hand. And if it works, yay, that's great. If it's not, everyone gets screwed. What is your thought on that as kind of an approach to storytelling? The, you know, not necessarily organically, but for purposes of commerce, throwing in a twist at the end. I feel like for forcing the network's hand is, is uh, basically impossible to do because they've approved the scripts before you shoot them. So they know, you know if, they're, if it's a cliffhanger, they've approved the cliffhanger and then they probably have a pretty decent idea of what they're going to do with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that, that idea that the, the last episode of the, the end, they have to feel surprising when they happen and inevitable in retrospect. Um, and potentially set up another season. Yeah, there's a lot that needs to get done in that final episode, like somehow bring the, bring the show to a conclusion that feels satisfying for that particular season, but then also not end it. Um, and yeah, and I feel like people have been doing this for a little while. It's like, it's a fine art, but, um, but it becomes a bit instinctual at that point. Well, I feel like all of you guys have had shows that have kind of had to sweat things out, whether The Affair or Manhattan or Halt, where you got to the end of the season and sometimes several weeks after the season and didn't necessarily know what the future was. What is the feeling that you guys have in that interim regarding where you left things? Is, is there something unsettled in your stomach or, do you, or have you had feelings where you're like, okay, if that's where it ends, that's where it ends? Oh, hello. Uh, so yeah, I made a show called Manhattan that um, ended before we would have liked it to end. Um, and uh, some, I, do I spoil my own show? Some cataclysmic things happened in the last moments of the, what wound up being the series finale of the show. And we, and we actually, uh, we knew that there was a reasonable shot that we wouldn't return. And we spent a lot of time um, agonizing over the choice because it felt like, um, in some ways, an unkind way to treat our audience at the end of a story. Um, it also felt like the culmination of the story we've been telling and in some ways a kind of, um, even if it was uh, unsparing, a kind of apotheosis of the sort of theme of the show in some ways, a show that was sort of about the cost of, uh, of uh, military secrecy and um, the human toll. Uh, but, I, but what I will tell you is that those were horrible weeks. It's horrible. You know, you care about the show, you, and you're, you're very tired because you've been working on it all season, and you want it to continue. But we, really, we spent a lot of time wrestling with the question of, um, of how to leave an audience, knowing that it might be the end. And, um, and we, we actually had a lot of um, different, deeply held opinions about that subject. Before Sarah answers, I want to know how long it takes to come to the, if this is the end, I can justify thematically how it's a satisfying thematic end to the story. Because I know that you know when I'm writing about things, I do that sometimes, and I, and I sort of bend over backwards to go, okay, I can tell you why this is a good ending, even if you're entirely unsatisfied by it. How hard was it to come to that conclusion, or was it easy? In the case of Manhattan, um, it... Uh well, it, well, I don't think that it was like a, a kind of um, retrospective, like I, I like to think that we weren't talking ourselves into something. Um, 
but it was a long process. You know, we made the show with Tommy Shlami, the, the director of The West Wing, who's great, great human and great director. Um, he had really strong opinions about it, and, and we spent, and it was quite painful. You know, like I'm not, I'm not like a, the, uh, I'm not a writer who like sort of sits and, and weeps as I type. But it, would, but it, it involved writing. Even if we continued writing characters, uh, you know, character off the show, we come to love writing. Uh, and an actor we loved working with, and those, you know, um, you spend enough time living in the world of a show. It sounds like a kind of hokey thing to say, but it's sort of like you have dual citizenship in one world, and then this other imaginative world. And for a while, it's just yours, and then actors and production designers, etc., they kind of help populate it, and it becomes very real uh, in a way. And so, um, so it was, it was a heavy, it was a heavy choice. Okay, so continuing with the, with the question for Sarah, sort of when you reach the end of a season and you aren't sure what is sort of the interim feeling like? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just like a bad showrunner that way because I don't, um, I, just, I just operate with the idea that there's gonna be another season. Uh, and if there isn't, okay, you know, like what am I gonna do? But I, I, I can't, um, I can't uh, like stand that idea. I hate that note, you know, it was like, well, wrap it up in a way that it could be the series finale. And also just the end of the season, you know, I just, I, 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 don't, I don't like the note. I don't think it, it's in, I don't think it works. You know, I don't think it's in service of like what you've been trying to do all season. I think it's a, it's destructive to the story you've been trying to tell. You can't just wrap everything up um, if you haven't been gunning for that from the beginning. I mean, it's one thing if you know it's your final season and you're like, okay, I'm gonna basically cross my eyes and dot my T's and wrap this up. But if you haven't, and then suddenly to like do it in your final episode, sort of, it's bad storytelling, um, so I don't. Uh, and then just assume we're coming back. Um, and then if we don't, you know, that we wouldn't not be the first show to end, you know, with without resolution. Um, and uh, I don't know. I feel like there'd be a little bit of pride in that too. I mean, some of my favorite shows didn't get the endings that they deserve, so I wouldn't be. I mean, I'm sure I'd be pissed, but you know, <laughs> I'd get over it. Well, it's, it's very strange, this particular question, because in a way, it just made me realize that TV and not, and, and these kinds of cliffhangers and multiple seasons, it's really the only art form I can think of where you ever get kind of cut off in the middle. Right. Like, that, that just doesn't happen, and it's not like somebody takes away your paint, or somebody, you know, tells you to end your movie after act two, or, I mean, it's, and, and so it's a very strange beast in a way, but I, I think that what, to me, what Sarah said is sort of like the way you have to live, too, which is to say, like, you know death is coming at some point, um, and, and, and so you have to just go on as if you're going to live forever. Have you know? a great night, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris? I have to follow de death is coming. Um, no, uh, well, you know, it was interesting because the, the last season of Halt and Catch Fire, we knew it was the last one. And, and that was a, a huge gift from the network to, to, you know, be renewed but know you were writing a conclusion because uh, it moved kind of everything into play uh, in a way that even when I'm watching other shows I, I have trouble with because, you know, you, know, you know, this is recurring cast. Like, this is a, a set I know they want to keep. This isn't really going to happen. We're not going to see this battle. Like, we're not going to lose this person. Uh, but in a final season, when you know you're done, um, 
you know, you have the ability to, to surprise people. And, and I think that was amazing for us, at least in trying to conclude our story. So um, the only time that it's, it's really kind of been hanging over our heads, I, I think we were kind of given the tools to, to finish it the way we wanted to. I feel like as viewers, we've kind of trained ourselves to know that death is inevitable for network shows. But I, but I think that for cable, we, we feel as if they play by different rules and they're supposed to be nicer, which is what made the demise of Manhattan sort of more painful is because it, it felt like something that wasn't the normal course of events. Do, do you guys feel like that when you're working with a cable network, that they're going to do something different to let you end the show you want? Because you'd never think that if you were on network. You'd never make any assumptions at all that NBC was going to let you finish your show. Right. Like, Sarah, do you feel like Showtime is going to let you put the affair to the last shot you have in mind? And there are Showtime people here. Sure. Amanda, where'd you go? <laughs> we're good? Okay. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I feel like the rules are changing in cable television so quickly. The streaming networks have like changed the game. I mean, I I remember when we started House of Cards like five years ago, six years ago. You know, and we were joking that if like the show did really well, we might win a Webby. You know, and like it was like I was going to be an internet show. No one's going to watch it. You know, and then it, it, everything just changed so radically. So I I feel like I. I don't know. I, I, I wonder, actually, I mean, I, I, listen, I, I love working with Showtime, and I hope they let me end the show, you know, on my terms. That's, it would be super decent of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, but no, they've been, they've been like a, a truly wonderful network to work with creatively, and I'm not just saying that because Amanda's here. Um, but I do feel like the, uh, a question I have is these, this, this idea that like a show needs to get to five seasons or six seasons or eight seasons or whatever to really be a successful show. I mean, I, that seems to be changing now. And, it, and, and I don't, I, I go back and forth as to whether or not I think it's to the detriment of the, of, of, of the creative process or actually like, a, um, it's, it's augmenting us because, um, you know, I, I, I when I start a project, I think, oh, well, there's no way this is going to go past three seasons. How could we possibly, you know, the stories have ends, and, 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 and absolutely you, you can blow the show. But then every year, I just feel like the characters get more interesting, and the story gets more complex, and I, somewhere halfway through that season, I see the next season and feel like we could keep going. So, and, and think that, you know, the shows like, like Breaking Bad, you know, get significantly better in their fourth season, fifth season, and they just start blowing everyone out of the water. So... Sometimes it takes that long to really, you know, figure out the world. Um, so part of me sort of mourns this idea that perhaps we're going towards more limited series in general. Um, but I, I don't know. Well, I feel that way too. I mean, like there is a more superficial thing that was a drag about being canceled is that you learn a great deal when you make a show. You know, I mean, you have a sense of what the show is and then you cast it and the actors kind of teach you who the characters really are and you find energy where you didn't expect it or, you know... The guy who was supposed to be your villain turns out really to be kind of a comic foil instead. You, you know, you, it's a sort of iterative process. That's, you know, Tommy always loves to talk about it as like this Darwinian kind of, the Darwinism of television that you sort of, um, you learn a great deal and um, the show evolves. And um, after a couple of seasons, there's a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, that doesn't mean that shows always get better, but um, if you listen, um, you have the opportunity to refine the idea of what it's supposed to be, you know, not necessarily what you thought it was uh, or wanted it to be. Um, and 
I don't know where I was going with that, except to say that that um, that you know I, that I think that um, that it's uh, exciting to be able to um, drive a show toward the place that it um, it sounds sounds like I should be holding a crystal, but the place where the show wants to be in a way. Well, how does Hulu feel right now? Is sort of a not necessarily a fully new frontier, but still somewhat because Sarah mentioned you know not knowing when she started off at Netflix if they were just going to win an uh, a Webby and you know. We can talk about Cable Ace Awards if we want to later, but um, but does it feel as if when you have conversations with Hulu that they're wanting to know what season four is or season three, or they just want to know what season one is? Um, well, I mean, I think it, it's been interesting for Sam and me both working on on Castle Rock is an anthology, um, and so from the beginning, from our first conversations with Hulu, it was always going to be that each season told a kind of close-ended story. And that has been the first time that either one of us has worked in that way. And that's actually, that creates a whole other set of parameters in terms of some of these questions, which is to say, like, it's a very odd thing. And in some ways, even the return of a show that's an anthology, we've all seen this with, like, talk of True Detective season three. It's like, Years can go by now where an anthology show goes away and then comes back and it, it, it and, and I think they're both for sort of, um, uh, you know, creative reasons and then for very honestly practical reasons having to do with the actors, that's much harder to do when you're talking about an ongoing series. And so, um, you know, I think for, with, with regard to Hulu, like the idea of, and there are certainly great challenges of, of course, starting all over again in a second season because you sort of feel like, wow, you, you as Sam said, kind of learn who the characters are and, and, and you start to understand more as you go. And as Sarah was saying, like, like sometimes it takes three or four seasons to even find the best version of the show. So how do you do that within one, one season it can be very hard. And so, but the, the flip side of that is that you have the freedom to kind of tell the closed ended story that you don't have to worry about whether you're gonna to get to keep going because even if you don't get to keep going, you're still sort of got to the end of that particular story, which is an interesting kind of difference. We have to take a quick break. Uh, you mean we get to take a break and be offered something awesome? Yes, that is what I meant. I thought so. More of the TV campfire and great TV conversations right after this sweet offer. It's hard to find a perfect pair of jeans, right? You don't want to break the bank, but you do need something that lasts. Great jeans don't have to be complicated, nor do they have to be expensive. That seems like a new theory. <laughs> well, with Distilled, it's free shipping both ways. So, like, really, what do you have to lose? So, if I order a pair and they're not right, like, for, they're too big, they're too small, they're too short, they're too long, they just, you know, don't make my legs look as good as I want them to, I can just put them back in the mail for free. Yeah, and you can get a refund or exchange them. There's like no risk to this scenario. The truth is, you will find the perfect pair. What's better than saving time and saving money? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Well, great TV is also maybe better than that. But here's the thing I was thinking about. When you're watching TV, like... You want to be in, like, really comfortable pants, right? Uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than watching TV or a movie, if you're a movie kind of person, yeah. and being uncomfortable and having your pants too tight. So I got the, like, black power stretch ones. And what's really cool about them is I can wear them to work or on a plane or into a meeting or on my couch watching a bunch of TV. A pair of pants that can transition from all of those places is kind of a miracle. It's like 
what's another version of sisterhood, the traveling pants? It's like, but for yourself, like right. you're the different phases of your life. Yeah. <laughs> These black pants that I got, like I was, I look, I'm going to be honest. I was doubtful. Like, I thought, I'm ordering these online. They look a little too skinny for me. Like, they just, they don't look like they're going to work. And they are the right amount of stretch. They're super comfortable. I wear them maybe more than I'd like to admit. (laughs) Well, and here's the thing. We have very different body shapes. So to have jeans that fit both of us, it's kind of magical. So here's the deal, guys. Go to Distilled, which is dstld.com right now, and you can get 20% off your first pair by using the code TV campfire at checkout. What are you waiting for? Seriously, go. Steering us back sort of towards the topic of the panel um, and going <laughs> <laughs> and go and going back to uh, what Sarah uh, talked about about the Aristotelian nature of all of this because I liked it. What is the awareness that you actually have when you're in the writer's room and you're charting things out of when the key points that you're building towards are going to fall in the season and where you're putting the note cards as you arrange the season, just on a practical level? We have this cool, because uh, the show's told from these different perspectives, we have this really cool board in my room where... Um, like, let's say it's told from four perspectives in one year, it's going to then Noah, Helen, Alice, and Cole. We've got, you know, one, two, three, four moving this way, and then one, two, three, and then the 10 episodes moving that way. So we grid it. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, it becomes a, right? So it's like Allison, Cole, Noah, Helen, one, two, three, four. And what's cool about that is like, and then we, you know, we have things that we want to happen. Like, in the second season of my show, I had this idea that I wanted the, the Noah character, who's a dad, to basically like see a, a girl in a hot tub and be attracted to her and move towards her at a party was really coked out. And then he gets in the hot tub and it's his daughter. It was like, it was one of our first ideas for the season, you know? And I was like, I feel like that's because I, because I knew it was going to be a 12 episode arc that year. So I knew, like, I, I always think that like the last three episodes of the season, no matter what, the, no matter what the, you know, no matter if it's 10 or 12 or 18, it's like something changes in those last three episodes. So in this season, it was going to be episode nine, where things were going to start to change. And so, um, and, and I feel like it's, it's like whatever starts in the first, whatever starts in the first episode of the season actually resolves, at least in my show, like resolves to a certain extent in nine. Something changes, or seven, whatever it is. If it's a 10-episode arc, it's seven. Like the question of the, the pilot episode gets kind of resolved in seven, or the question of the pilot episode gets kind of resolved in nine. And then the last three episodes are basically sort of a, different story, not a completely different story. Obviously, it's been building, but it's like, anyway, that's just the way we do it. Like, something changes in that episode. So I knew that that was going to be a big deal, because the character sort of starts off at the beginning of the season. It's like, he's kind of like becoming, getting everything he ever wanted and becoming a dick, and then this is where it's, it starts, this is, that's the worst thing that can happen to him. And so that's where it leads. Um, so anyway, we put that on the board there, and then everything else started to get kind of like puzzle pieces sort of built around it, you know, so we knew something was going to happen to the Helen character, and it felt like it should probably happen if we, if we, you know, if we have to get there by nine, then this should happen around four, and this should happen, maybe this needs to happen in two, and, and so it's, it's cool, because we, because different things happen in different perspectives, we can sort of end up like blocking this kind of like, um, mosaic, um, and then, you know, sort of moving stuff around, and it's become somewhat instinctual, but, um, but you can see it. So by your standard, this is an entirely false dichotomy that we're drawing on this panel at all. (laughs) Wasn't my idea. Which I'm totally fine with. I'm totally fine with. I'm just trying to... Okay, so how about for the rest of you in terms of actual... 
practice. Do you guys have charts like Sarah does? Well, you know, it's such a, we have a very similar system. And, and I think as soon as the story starts to come into focus at the beginning of the year, you, you spend a couple weeks talking about character and, and things that might happen. We put up like a very rough version of oh, maybe this falls here, maybe this falls here. Uh, but I think two things happen over the course of the season. One, there's like a big gravitational pull where things that we've got later in the season seem to just suck this way. And then you look ahead and go, episode eight, we're great. We have all those cards we put up at the beginning of the season. You get there and they're nonsense because they're like first week ideas that you've been telling yourself. We've got tons of stuff for eight. And then you get there and it's like arrest in Oaxaca. And it's like, what did that even mean? Um, (laughs) So I think it's in one way, like I think you do it to make yourself believe there's a season there so that you can get close enough to those episodes to actually like do the work of kind of chumming through it and kind of making TV happen. But uh, it, it is, I think it's an important uh, self-preservation exercise as much as anything. Sam or Dustin? Get in there. No, I mean, it, it's funny. I think one thing that, um, and, and this sort of started when, when um, we were working on Sam's show Manhattan, um, we, we have sometimes taken the approach of thinking about it. I'm curious, working features, like, as, as you have, like, we've taken a little bit of the of the feature structure approach, which is to say you have a first act and you have a second act and you have a third act in a 10-episode or 12-episode season. And, I mean, as you are even saying, like, how you define that, like, act two plot point that yeah. turns you in, and, and what the third act is, right. is is highly, you know, up for up for grabs. But, but that there is sort of the, some of the structures of, of feature storytelling hold when you're telling a 10-hour movie. And so I think that, that, that um, certainly that's true in Castle Rock season one as well, where, where there are sort of almost classical turning points at certain episodes, and we kind of knew and mapped out at some level, like, oh, at this episode, this big thing will happen, and then at you know three episodes later, this other big thing will happen, and 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 that will sort of push us into our final act of the season. So I think for me, it's just a really easy way to kind of keep your eye on the ball of the structure of a season because it just breaks out more naturally than some other structures. Well, uh, Dustin, you and Sam have both worked, I believe, on at least at the beginning of your careers in network procedurals as well. Is this a conversation that just doesn't go on at all in that world? Is, is there just not the same rigor, I guess, to season-long structure? And is that a nice thing to not have to worry about? Well, I think I, I spent a lot, maybe a lot more time in the network procedural game than Sam did. So, but but I, you know, I think that that. In, in network procedurals, especially when you're talking about episodic, truly like episodic television where there's barely a through line or the through line is, you know, two, two scenes that get carried over the course of, of 22 episodes or whatever, I think that the, the challenge of, of network TV, as, at least as I've experienced it, especially when you're back to the days of doing 22 episodes, like it, it, it is that you are you are really just trying to crank out individual episodes and that you're trying to find a cohesion to those individual episodes, which is why it's like when you think back to how crazy it is that they were making 20 episodes a season of Lost, like who, how, what, what does that mean? You know, trying to create a story that is, um, you know, 1,200 pages long that, that, isn't just like you know new pers- new new perp of the week, like but actually has a cohesive story to tell from beginning to end. It seems impossible at this point. Let's see if there are any questions from the nice people in the crowd. Oop, back. 
I've noticed that in other countries, they seem to have series where they start off and it's only going to be, they already know it's only going to be a certain number of episodes when they start. Do you see that becoming more popular? Was the question, do, do we see it more, becoming more popular? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, I mean, it's interesting. It has to do with a lot of kind of contract things, but, you know, it used to be uh, that you would lock an actor up for about six years with a TV contract, and, and that uh, is not that appetizing anymore, uh, but I think on the creative side, it's also exciting because you can get people that are, you know, kind of big feature-type actors that want to come do one year of a show, and you can, you know, put up something like Fargo, uh, and those people kind of know they'll have their creative freedom to keep moving. So, so I, I don't know, I think that kind of one-off or anthology with some kind of, uh, you know, tie that binds it uh, to the following season is, is going to continue to be huge just because I, I think it's something talent likes um, from top to bottom. And it also, I, th I think, allows for, you know, high-quality storytelling. Yeah, I, I don't know the, um, the business side of it so well, but what I seem to understand, which is one of the reasons that it may not happen here as readily as it's happening in like Britain, is that, um, is that it's more cost effective if the show runs for longer for a network, because A, they have to do less, they have to spend less money on promoting it, because it has an, an audience, mm -hmm. and B, I think the international sales get better uh, the longer the show runs. Um, and international sales are what's driving our industry at this point, so, um, so that would be the one thing that I think might keep the American television market, you know, uh, more aligned with long-running shows. But, um, but again, I, I mean, it's, that's not my job, so I'm not quite sure. I never am able to predict what the audience is going to like. I'm always surprised. Um, yeah, no, the audience is yeah at this point because of Twitter and um, and 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 these like recaps that happen every week, and you get graded on individual episodes, which I really hate. <laughs> I don't feel like you would grade chapters of a novel. Just like wait till you see the whole season and then start to judge it. But. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that you, absolutely, you're, you're incredibly aware at this point of what the audience thinks about everything. Um, usually, by that time, it's too late to do anything about it, but at least you know. Anyone else have an answer to that one? I mean, mine's a cop-out, because I feel like I, I really insulate myself from the response, uh, especially at that point, because usually the show airs so long after I've had anything to you know, my hands are off the wheel at that point, so it's just damage if I allow myself to think about different choices. Um, but I think you absorb that going into the new one. I mean, I, I think usually you kind of look at the cumulative impact at the end of it uh, as, as you begin the next season. Um, but, but usually that's also just a time of self-collection <laughs> um, before, before you kind of face the new challenge. Um, but it's a great question. Well, I mean, so when we made our show, one thing that um, 
made it hard to say goodbye to the to the characters and to the world of the show. Um, besides the fact that I had like you know um, probably like seven hundred books about period nuclear physics <laughs> in boxes in my house. Um, but one thing that's really hard is um, we had this really lucky experience, an unusual experience of working with a cast, all of whom became kind of dear friends of ours. And in part, it may have been because so we shot our show in, in Santa Fe, um, which almost kind of approximate, there's almost like kind of a little synecdoche for the actors of the experience of these physicists and their families who moved out to this sort of fly spec desert town, secret town to build a bomb. So they were, you know, except we were just building a show that kind of commercially bombed, but I think it was quite good. Um, uh, but anyway, but the, but the actors, they were really, really wonderful and they spent a lot of time together and, and enjoyed each other and we really enjoyed them um, as human beings. And also, you know, you get a chance to write for John Benjamin Hickey or, or uh, you know, Rachel Brosnahan now is doing her incredible turn on Miss Maisel and she, she was on our show and it's, it's such a pleasure to be able to write for those actors. Um, and so you miss that, I, I will say like, um, and I, there will be times still where I'll be walking around or out for a run and I will find myself writing for one of those characters in my head. It becomes reflexive in a way, especially once you know, I mean, this is like a weird way to talk about it, but like the actor is a sort of instrument in a way, once you know what the instrument's capable of and you, you, it, it gets better and easier to write for them um, because you can hear their voices. and. Um, and it's a sad thing to, I mean, it, it really, it is like, you know, losing a relationship that is meaningful to you um, when you don't have that kind of continuity experience anymore. And I didn't figure out a therapeutic way to get through it, so I don't have, so it's not like I burned sage in my apartment or anything. It just, you know, I was just bummed out for a while and had to just call up John Benjamin Hickey and say like, hey, what's up, man? What are you doing? We talked a lot at the end of Hell and Catch Fire about leaving the characters in a place we would want to think of them Afterwards, and, and I really find that's true because it was, you know, that was six years of my life that I spent kind of thinking about those people, kind of trying to feel their problems and have their lives be real. Um, and it was surprising at the end how important that was to to make sure, you know, when you uh, kind of wrapped out each of those characters, you knew in your mind they're still at this place doing this, and 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 they got this modicum of closure. And sure, they'll never be complete, you know, they'll never be complete in this way, but. Um, it's, it's funny. It's funny how real that actually ends up becoming, and, and then you miss it. It's, it's why the reboot phenomenon really kind of blows my mind right now, especially with these shows that had totally full, proper endings, and then now we're just like, pick, pick yeah, like, the, I, am I allowed to say Roseanne out loud? Um, <laughs> like the, the, but, but, but like the, 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 the idea that they, just, that they just ignored the realities of the ending of yeah, it's very strange to me because, it, and, and, and obviously now we're seeing more and more of that as the reboot phenomenon has come in. And so besides all the other kind of existential questions about the reboot phenomenon, that's one that keeps kind of coming back to me, which is like exactly that. Like they left those characters in the place they wanted to imagine them. Like why did we have to come back? Hi guys. Um, I, you all wrote your pilots with um, partners as far as I'm, I'm aware. Hunt, Catch Fire, Castle Rock, The Affair. Um, I think that's right. Um, when, when you're actually writing with a partner, is it a case of um, write, one writer looking at the other one's shoulder, or do you outline together and then you kind of divide up scenes and go away to your separate rooms and come back? I'm just curious about process. 
I'll go, I'll go quickly. Uh, Sarah didn't have a part. We, we, at least in, our, in my partnership, I write with a guy named Chris Cantwell on the TV side. Uh, and we kind of believe that um, that first part of writing needs to be kind of unwatched. So we don't, we don't do that together. Um, we'll, we'll kind of agree on an outline and kind of kick that back and forth. But in terms of like going into a room and, and, and making the people begin to say things to each other, I think you need to be free to suck uh, and not have someone over your shoulder like, mm, you know. Is that what we're gonna do? You know, like I think you need that space. So, so we we proceed from that place, and it's a lot of kind of handing off and then getting together to 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 see if we can kind of sharpen after that. But uh, I think that's at least the foundation of writing with a partner for me, at least. Yeah, it's like you know how like cats when they're gonna die, they just crawl off into a hole in the wall somewhere. That's sort of the way I write. I can't have any human being near me. Um, <laughs> So no, we, were, we weren't together in a, in a room at all. But I do find it very interesting how different, is this, sorry, I'll answer a different question, but I find it very interesting how different rooms approach um, the question of, of how much is predetermined before you go off to write a scene. I've worked on shows where um, the extent of breaking a scene might be, you know, um, uh, you know uh, she tells him that she was having an affair at the laundromat, and that's what the scene is. Um, or other shows where um, uh, all of the internal beats of a scene and the in and the out and an image that's provocative, those things are all um, hashed out together with the writer's room. And then there are other shows, you know, on, on some of um, Damon Lindelof's shows, they really will write the scenes together. So by the time somebody is off to script, um, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, add water to the bullion cube and format it and put in the action lines. And of course, when you do that, you make discoveries about what worked or what didn't work. Um, but, uh, um, Anyway, it's just it's um, interesting that uh, different processes seem to suit different writers. Who am I in the cat scenario? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think you're animal control. We were, we were also talking about this in the green room, that only one of us actually has an experience getting to a series finale at this point. So... Oh, oh, oh. What a handoff. Um, I was taking that one off in my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it, it, it's a thing I alluded to earlier of everything is in play with, with a series finale. It, it, in at least the reality I've operated under um, at AMC is that there are certain things I feel like you can't do season to season or else you risk losing the audience, you know, if you want to kill off a major character, if you, if you want to really take it in a, in a huge, crazy swing, uh, you have to get buy-in on multiple levels um, more in a season uh, that won't be your last to do things like that. So I think there's an immense freedom to, to knowing this show ends, but it, again, that's a luxury most people don't have, you know. Um, so uh, maybe it takes bravery uh, of the kind I didn't have to have. <laughs> well, your finale in particular, it harkened back so frequently to the pilot. It was one of those finales that was all about echoes. Did you always know that those were the beats that you wanted to hit? Did they become clear to you when AMC said, take one more season and be done? When did you know that you wanted those echoes to come into play? 
I mean, it, it certainly wasn't a long time before you we were writing it. I, I mean, we dogmatically, and it's probably obnoxious, but really subscribe to that thing of trust the process, use what you've got, you know, get there, get there, get there, and, and, and then try to find it on the day. Um, and by on the day, I don't mean when you're filming, but I mean, don't try to write the finale in the second week of the writer's room. So, so I, I think when we got to the end of it, we felt like the things we had to say wanted to speak back to the pilot. I, I think we felt like some of the questions we were trying to answer in that Halt and Catch Fire in Our Minds was a story that ended up being about a, a family of choice. Um, and so, you know, when those themes kind of had risen to the top over the, the course of the journey, uh, it, it was that much easier to kind of codify them at that time. I get really actually annoyed with those conversations where people are like, so did you know everything that was going to happen when you started? And you're like, no, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, and you're like, nobody does. It's a, it's a lie. It's, a, you know, it's, it's a myth that everybody has this, as knows exactly where their show's going. And I think if you do know exactly where your show's going, then that's not a great thing for the show because yeah. then you're not, you're not able to surprise yourself. You're not listening to the actors. You're not drawing, like, you're not really drawing from your own experience. I mean, one thing that I think that we haven't talked about, which is true about show running, is that like, if the show goes on for long enough, you change too. You're not this per person who started writing it. So. When I think about the affair, I think about I, this. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Like, I wrote the first draft of that show when I was like 30 or 31, um, and I'm 38. Sorry, I had to think about that for a second. I'm 38 now, uh, and I started off the show like very identified with the Allison character, who's the younger woman on the show. And I'm going to leave that show. I mean, hopefully, I will get to end it the way I want to, but I'm going to leave it very identified with the Helen character, um, who's the older woman on the show. Um, and that's just because I've lived through my 30s and changed, you know, and things have happened that I didn't see coming. And so the show changes too, I think, with the showrunner or with the, with the writer's room or whoever is, is running it. And so that's also something that's completely unseen at the beginning. So as a reporter, when a showrunner tells me, oh, we have a five-season plan, or when Amy Sherman Palladino says, oh, I know what the last five words of Gilmore Girls are, what is, what is the reaction that you would like us to have? <laughs> Amy Sherman Palladino might know what the last. <laughs> I would believe, right, exactly. If there was one woman who, who had it figured out, it might have been her. Um, I don't know. I just, I find it that, I don't know. I find those questions, like, very leading, and there's, like, a wrong answer to them, and I, they annoy me. But, um, but I don't, yeah, I, I, different writers are different, for sure. But I, I also think, like, different writers deal with the anxieties of the unknown in different ways. Um, I'm a person who is prone to some anxiety, which in some ways means that I've like found myself into the in a in a in a um, uh, ill-fitting um, job because uh, you write serious television, and often you know the production starts and the train's whistling and things change. And um, but uh, it can be useful to tell yourself a story about uh, about the trajectory of what the show is going to be and what the season can be. I mean, I, I like to say sometimes that I feel like TV is a business of best laid plans often. And um, so it was very, uh, you know, when Manhattan was made, I spent a lot of years just in the sort of like, uh, you know, monastic little, you know, hermetic, you know, chamber of my own brain thinking about the show. And I, I, had, a, I had a five year plan, you know, and I had, I had a lot of thoughts about the characters and some of them um, survived and many of them didn't. Uh, but it was sort of, um, I think I would have been too terrified for myself to enter the series with no, at least, um, uh, you know, North Star that I sort of like um, thought I was navigating toward. 
a lot of your stories seem to involve crawling into walls or monastic spaces, I'm noticing. Yeah, I have small children at home, so there's not a lot of solitude or quiet, so it may be aspirational. I've uh, got at least one more back there. It's a really good question. Not annoyed at all. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's funny because I, um, you you in the pitch process you go you go in and you have to muster your best bluster. I mean to rhyme there, um, but in, in that you have to present something and 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 you're literally talking about about a second season and a, and and a third season sometimes and. It's almost like a piece of theater in a way because you know that it's a lie and I think they kind of know it's a lie too and so it's a little bit like why are we doing this right now but yet somehow it's become ingrained as a part of the process where it's like oh there are so many stories and, and, it, and it, it, it just it, 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 exactly where we're going the last five sentences all mapped out I, I heard a great piece of advice about this once from uh, Melissa Bernstein, who's a fantastic producer I get to work with, um, that when you're writing a format or, or a pitch or something like this, you want to suggest as much possibility as you can without marrying yourself to specific details they can say no to. Uh, and that's not as cynical as it sounds, because, because I do think your job as the writer, as the person bringing the story to a network, is to, to bring the enthusiasm. If you're not psyched about it, then nobody's psyched about it. Uh, and I think creative executives want to kind of backfill some of their own understanding into that. So, so I think you need to create like a big space with some big themes that, that a person can say, like, I can, I can see how this could live inside that. But, you know, if you think you know the, the fourth episode of season four, you know, you're, you're doing it wrong because, you know, the, the point is to take that journey and get there and, and beat the thing you have. So I don't know. That, that broad, non-cynical suggestion, I... I think is maybe the way to approach it with an open heart. But that's also, I mean, I, I, we may be in this point of like, you know, quote unquote peak TV where the, even the pitching process has gotten a little bit bloated and ridiculous because it, it's true. Like when we, when I first started here, we, nobody went to pitch with a huge, you know, 150 page Bible and like three seasons mapped out, you know, and now it's become a little bit de rigueur, which is, uh, which is a little insane. But, but I do think it, it, it has become a little bit like theater, you know, and everybody's just like nodding and smiling, like you're talking about your fourth season. And, uh, but, but I will say that I, I think there is, that's really good advice, this idea of, of, of suggesting possibility without wedding yourself to anything, because there was a point when I got really excited about an idea and I had a producer who was like, I'll just pay you to write 10 episodes, you know? And so I, I went to my agent and I was like, it's fantastic. She's just gonna pay me to write 10 episodes. We don't even have to pitch it. We can just bring all 10 episodes. And they were like, don't do that. Like, no, that's a terrible idea because actually then you're gonna give the network too many reasons to say no. You know, if it doesn't go in the direction that they're looking for, they're, it's not, or they didn't get to bring themselves to the process, or you know, you don't, it doesn't feel collaborative at all, then people are gonna pass more quickly, actually. So I, I don't think that the idea is to go in knowing everything. I think it's to basically 
present a really compelling world and see what comes out of the conversation in the room. Do we have one more question to wrap up on here? Sure, go for it. Does anyone like pitching? Sorry, may I ask? I mean, it, like, there's a lot of like fetal position in the shower afterward, you know? I mean, like, we're sensitive souls. We're not, you know, vacuum cleaner salesmen, and so, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, but you manage your, what is it, like Jonathan Franzen line about the hydraulics of insincere smiles? You do, you, you, you work up your insincere smiles, and you do it, and so. I mean, I, I, will, I will say that, like, I think, um, uh, I think from a, pra a business standpoint, I mean, there's more of a marketplace now for scripts that have been written on spec to have a life on television than there was five years ago. Um, I still think that there are probably advantages from a business standpoint to pitching, um, but it is a very, very evil, necessary evil. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. Well, but you still have to pitch when you write on spec. I mean, I, I wrote the affair on spec and then had to go in and, and pitch it, you know, and pitch the, what the show was going to be, you know, what the world was and what three seasons were going to look like and made a Bible. Um, so it's, I don't think it's one or the other, but I, yeah, I don't think any, anybody likes pitching. And I do think that actually, I mean, I, I do prefer to write on spec, be, at least the pilot, because then at least you do get that, like, you know, that, that moment where nobody's looking over your shoulder, where it's just like you and an idea that's super personal to you and very pure and like you don't want anybody else up in it until you figure out what you think it could be. Excellent. Well, thank you guys all very much for coming and thank you to, to Chris, Dustin, Sarah, and Sam. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATXFestival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV Campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2019. For more information on attending, visit www.atxfestival.com.